It's a great privilege to be back with all of you again this morning and to worship and pray and fellowship. And I don't know about you, but if it was up to me, I could listen to and uh, witness baptisms all day. It's one of my favorite things. It's such a wonderful illustration, depiction of what the Lord has done in saving those who have repented and trusted in Christ. And so praise God for these three young women, and we have to make sure that we continue to pray for them and come alongside them to disciple them in their walk with Christ. Well, as Eric said, I invite you today to turn to 1 Timothy And I know the elders, and we all have been going through 1 Timothy, wonderful pastoral epistle to be studying, to learn from, to be instructed by. And today we are going to be focusing on chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. Chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. And the title of today's sermon is Godly Instructions for Godly Women. Godly instructions for godly women. Now, while Paul is addressing and focusing on the women of the church here, men, I want to make sure that we as well, of course, pay close attention as we have to understand what Paul is instructing the church here, Um, not just for women, of course, he is addressing women, but the principles that are applied here and given to us are applied to all of us how we as Christians ought to conduct ourselves in the household of God. So godly instructions for godly women. Let's go ahead and read verses 9 to 12. In fact, what I'm going to do, even though I'm not preaching to verse 15 today, I'm going to read the entire section just so we understand the full scope and context in which this passage is situated. Verse 9, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Verse 12, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, as we just sang the song, Speak, O Lord, may you take this passage, this brief passage, and speak to every one of us today who are here. Open up our eyes Give us attentive hearts and help us to be willing to receive the truth that is contained in this passage. Help us to not only be listeners and hearers of your word, but active doers as we depend and rely on your Holy Spirit to direct and guide us. Help me to preach this passage clearly, and above all, Lord, may you be glorified and lifted up as we look into your holy word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Well, as you know, in 1 Timothy, as as we come to chapter 2, as you've been studying chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 so far, the Apostle Paul is giving his young protege in the faith instructions on how chapter 3, verse 15, is to play out in the church as a whole, which that verse in chapter 3, verse 15, just to remind you, says Christians ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. This is why Paul is writing this letter. So Christians know how to conduct themselves in the household of God. And he goes on, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, as we come to verses 9 to 12 today, which arguably, as you probably know, is one of the most debated and controversial texts in the New Testament, And as we come to this passage, we must keep in mind this verse, chapter 3, verse 15. For the duration of this sermon, we must remind ourselves that the church is God's church, not our church, though we are members of his church by his grace. Christ is the head of the church. Christ determines what the church is, and how believers in Christ are to conduct themselves in the functionality, purpose, and leadership of the church, especially as the saints come together for corporate worship, prayer, and Bible instruction. In fact, Paul is writing this, and he reminds Timothy why he he is giving these instructions in chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In our day and age, where none of us are immune to this and we see it all the time, there is a heap of confusion and even rebellion and sinfulness regarding who men and women are and what their roles are in society, at home, and in the church. And incredibly, of course, we've been seeing in the news and all over the country, there are men who think that they can become women, and there are women who think that they can become men, not just in functionality, but also even biologically. I mean, as we look at the world in which we live, it can be a mad, mad world out there full of chaos and confusion and sin. Now, as Christians, we should not be surprised when the world acts like the sinful and evil world that it is. But when the church follows the same mentality and practices of the world, we must pause and try to learn how we as the church have possibly, if we have, veered off course. And as believers, if we have, we must be quick to repent and realign ourselves with the only authoritative source that the Lord has given us, his word, which teaches us clearly how the church must conduct itself according to God's truth and holy and godly instructions. Now, as we come to 9 through 12, I want to say that this text won't be approached as a debate or a polemic, or trying to figure out how the church has interpreted this passage throughout church history, all of which is fine to do. 
But I want to approach this text as a positive biblical exposition. Positive biblical exposition of what the Holy Spirit is saying through the Apostle Paul to all of us today in this room. As we are as the church, not only as we learned this morning in the educational time, we aren't just to absorb the knowledge that we find in the word of God, but we are to actively and on a daily manner put it into practice. Now, I also want to say that as we go through this text, a number of questions might arise in your mind as to how this can be applied. And we're going to cover a lot of things in relation to that, but not every question is going to be answered here. And that can be worked out as we talk to one another, as you interact with the elders, or if you want to ask me some questions after the service, I encourage you to do so. But today we're going to be looking at godly instructions for godly women. We will be asking two fundamental questions, two fundamental questions that cover this text. And the first one is, how should godly women dress in the church? That's in verses 9 and 10. How should Christian women, how should godly women dress in the church? And number two, how should godly women be discipled in the church? How should godly women be discipled in the, in the church? Now, these questions are very important to us, and they should be because it's not me that is concocting this lesson. This is what we find in God's perfect word. So let's get straight to it. Verses 9 to 10. How should godly women dress in the church, in Christ's church? Now, when it comes to dress, clothing, how we adorn ourselves, this is an area where many people might think, well, this isn't a big deal. Some might think, I can dress however I want. I have the freedom to do so. Some might think, well, there's no ramifications at all to the way I clothe myself. But if that type of thinking is indeed in our minds, God's word redirects that kind of thinking. Just like Paul in, in, in the previous passage that Dylan preached a couple weeks ago, particularly in verse 8, Paul warned men, he kind of isolated the men there for a, a moment, to warn them against anger and disputes within the church, something men might be more prone to do than women. And so Paul talks to the men there, and now he shifts his focus to the women, and he warns women of being excessively focused on bodily appearance and dress. If you look at verse 9, he begins with the word likewise. That's an important word, it, likewise, in verse 9, because this shows that just as the men that he focused on before to act godly in corporate worship, so too are the women. So too are the women. And Paul isn't merely focused on just the church of Ephesus at that time as if it has no bearing on our lives today. In verse 8, let's remind ourselves that Paul said that therefore I want the men in not just Ephesus but in every place. This aspect of Paul's teaching is focused on not just the local Ephesus church even though he is addressing them This relates to all churches at all 
time in every place. So it's not just a local cultural issue. As some, if you study this passage, passage, some interpreters would have us believe that it's just the Ephesian church. It has nothing to do with us. But every church, everywhere, at all times. Yes, as we study the context of this, it's true that during that time in the Greco-Roman world in which Paul was placed, many women were captivated by extravagance in clothing, dressing, dressing ostentationally, ornately, in a way to show off their riches. As you look at me, look how much money I have by the way I dressed. In doing so, dressing like this required an inordinate, lengthy amount of time to dress oneself in this manner. As the women did, you study the history, a lot of the Roman women did that during that time. But we could say that it's perhaps so that a lot of women today might do so as well. And so Paul takes verses 9 and 10, this very brief section, to encourage the women. This is an encouragement to encourage the women to focus their attention elsewhere, one that is of eternal significance and demonstrates the reality of their confession as Christians, those who are saved by Christ, those who are holy women of God set apart from the world to God. And so what are Paul's Holy Spirit-directed instructions for women believers? Again, thankfully, the, the, the Bible gives us those instructions. And Paul does so in truth and in love. Look at verse 9 again. Focus your attention there. He says, I want women to adorn themselves. What Paul is getting at here with the word adorn is that he wants to, them to dress themselves, present themselves differently, counterculturally even. This word for adorn can mean physical, external clothing, but it also can have the idea of outward behavior, demeanor, how you present yourself as a believer in Christ. It can literally mean causing one to have an attractive appearance. And attractive not just in the physical sense, but mostly in the godly sense. Not attractive and adorning so as to attract onlookers with perhaps seductive, exorbitant, or flashy clothing and appearance. See, Paul doesn't want to only focus on external dress here in this passage, but also how the women clothe themselves in godliness, respect, and dignity, and righteous and godly behavior and living on a day-to-day basis. Now, as a caveat, I want you to hear this. Paul is not calling for women to dress down or to be ugly or to cover themselves completely like some religions might have people do, or to not at all care about your appearance. But it can be said, to some degree of course, that how one adorns themselves is an indicator of the heart. How one adorns themselves is a gauge of where the heart actually is. Paul actually raises the standard of how women are to dress in the worship service when the church comes together, 
But also, of course, we have to apply this at all times in our lives. So it's not like you can just come to church, dress one way, and then live a particular way as soon as you leave the doors of the church building. Now, again, this was in many ways a unique problem for women back then. This is why Paul has to bring it up. However, it's, it, it, we can't deny the fact that it is a problem today. The heart is the heart no matter what time of history you are in. And uh, fashion and bodily appearance and even sex appeal, um, you know, these are the things that our culture is obsessed with, is it not? I mean, you just go to any store, look at the magazines, go online, shopping, uh, wherever you go, fashion and bodily appearance is exalted. And so we have to, as Christians, be careful about where our intentions, our motives lie when it comes to how we present ourselves. Now, Paul talks about the actual description of way, ways women did dress themselves back then and why he wanted to help them divert their thinking to a more godly thinking. If you look again at, at the second part of verse 9, the description of dress that Paul gives is in many ways con confined to the cultural context of his day. This is how many women dressed then who could really much afford it. Um, plus this kind of dress could have, as some commentators have said, could have been associated with the local temple prostitutes, how they adorned themselves in such a gaudy way to attract onlookers and people um, to get them to come to them, that this was very common in the city of Ephesus. But as Paul warns against, if you look at verse 9, uh, some women were elaborately, elaborately wearing braided hair. Sometimes their hair was interwoven with gold, uh, which of course was and is very expensive and not as easy to obtain back then. But they also decked themselves out in pearl which was three times more expensive than gold and more rare to find and get. Pearls were worn as necklaces and earrings and it was placed in their hair or sometimes it was even worn on their toes, on their feet. And he also talks about costly garments that they wore, um, which were extremely expensive. I'm, I'm talking a year's wage for one dress for a woman to wear. So you can imagine how much time, money, and effort some spent on clothing, and some of these women were coming to the church gathering dressed in this manner to show off the kind of clothing they have. And doing so, Paul is alluding to bringing this to attention, dressing this way would have been a huge distraction to those trying to worship God in the church. But the overriding principle is this, and it applies to all. Don't be so consumed by what you wear, which is important, of course, as much, though, as you should be focused on godly living, godly appearance, your demeanor in the way in which you represent Christ in your life. Paul says in verse 9 that women are rather to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, and discreetly. 
They are to have a different set of values that is contrary to the world's values. And women especially, um, we all have to be careful with this, but women especially must be careful not to dress in a seductive manner or flashily. And these days, yeah, it's very tempting, I think, for many to do so. And we as men and fathers and mothers who are in Christ, I think it's very critical that we step up to teach our daughters what it means to dress, and I can say our because I also have a daughter, what it means to dress in a godly fashion, in a godly demeanor, how to live your way that shines the light of Christ rather than look at what I'm wearing today. And so if we don't do that as a church, as husbands, as fathers, as mothers, as mentors, then the world is going to take over and teach women, young women, and even men, how they ought to dress. And it will influence them. What does Paul further say about this? Well, they are to dress properly, proper clothing, proper. This means well-ordered, balanced, respectable, proper clothing. It means being mindful of what you wear, being mindful. And the word modestly means not just the clothing that one wears, but the attitude that accompanies how one presents herself in what she decides to wear and why she's wearing that. The godly woman is conscientious of the clothing that she chooses to wear, Um, not wanting her clothing to be an ungodly distraction or as a means to inflame lust in others or jealousy in anyone or to show off as if coming to church is a runway fashion show. And discreetly means, and I quote this, I like this, um, means the practice of prudence, good judgment, moderation, self-control as exercise of care and intelligence appropriate to the circumstances. In other words, what you wear does in many ways say a lot about your devotion and love toward God. Yes, God sees your heart and man sees the outward appearance. But that outward appearance does in many ways demonstrate what's going on internally. You think as you, what you wear and how you present yourself, you think judiciously. What you're going to wear, it's not like you're spending all this time all morning, but you think clearly about what you're going to wear. You're less concerned about fitting in with the culture and more concerned about living and dressing in a way that pleases and represents Christ's honor and reputation. The worship service, I think it's important to say, is not about showing off ourselves or our bodies or what we wear, what kind of clothing we have or jewelry or outward appearance or really any time for that matter as we dress each and every day, even to go to work. And instead of exhibiting these things, women, and of course men too, should clothe themselves modestly, humbly, and with all purity. See, Paul was not entirely against dressing nicely. As I look around, I see everyone here is dressed very nicely and thought carefully about what they wore today to come with the, to be with the church. 
But Paul is warning against excessive overindulgence of how we dress and, and dressing disproportionately, focusing on our clothing. And the question, rather, as we put on clothes should be this. What are my motives? What are my intentions as I put on this particular clothing? Am I seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness first? Or am I more driven by the piece of clothing that I put on today? Now, thankfully, as we go to verse 10, Paul provides a better way to counter this temptation if indeed you are tempted in this manner and how you dress. And in addition to wearing proper clothing and uh, living in a modest and discreet manner, um, what a woman should do, look at verse 10. He says, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Uh, what Paul is saying here is that those women who profess godliness, that I, that's the only time that word is used here in the New Testament, godliness. All it means is that those who claim to be followers of Christ, those who revere and worship God, are to what? Not just be concerned about what you wear, but putting on good works. Putting on good works. Those works that are godly and bring glory to God. This is the better option. See, good works are more suitable for one who professes that they worship the one true and living God, one who claims that they're a follower of Christ. And a woman in this context, these are the ones Paul is saying, be less concerned about your wardrobe. Be more concerned about worship. Less concerned about wardrobe. Focus your attention, rather, on worship. Not the world, not the color. Shift and divert your attention on what is right, true, and pure. Again, nothing wrong with trusting well, modestly, discreetly, purely. But Paul wants women, and of course men, to dress and behave in a righteous manner, which is far superior than what you wear. Thinking back on the Old Testament, Proverbs 31, when it talks about um, the, the woman who is godly, Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Godliness, someone who fears and worships the Lord. Now, I want to say this kind of as a footnote. Um, Paul is talking about how women must live out their lives applying and exercising good works. Now, the term good works sometimes gets a bad reputation in the church. Because when we hear that expression, we can sometimes think of doing good works to gain salvation. Um, but that is clearly not the case. As we know, as the rest of Scripture says, we are justified and saved by grace uh, through faith in Christ alone, period, as the baptismal testimonies attested to today. But good works for a Christian are a manifestation of one who is born again. Uh, good works are not a performed to achieve salvation, but are an effect, an outgrowth of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Ephesians 2.10, not only did he save us by grace, but he created us uh, for good works beforehand so that we may walk in them. And these good works, of course, are not for women only, but for all who are in Christ by grace. There are numerous verses in Titus and Timothy. I encourage you to read those pastoral epistles where Paul, especially Titus, where he keeps encouraging the believers to do good deeds. 
And so, as we conclude this first point of how godly women are to dress in the church, we are not to be involved flaunting ourselves, but more so with God being, God being exhibited in our lives. That's who we want to flaunt, so to speak, God, and worship him, drawing attention to him more so than drawing attention to me. To think about it, when you go to a wedding, who's the main person at the wedding? The bride, right? And the, the main human who is <laughs> most important at the wedding, the bride. And she is wearing a beautiful flowing dress. We stand up when she's coming down the aisle. Now, could you imagine attending a wedding and you're wearing a dress that is more ornate and beautiful than the bride's and you're drawing attention to yourself rather than to the bride? I mean, that would be absurd, would it not? You want the focus to be on the bride. And Paul is saying, make sure rather than your focus being on what you wear and flaunting yourself or whatever, make sure that the focus is pointed to God. Peter talks about this as well in 1 Peter 3, 3 to 4, about how women are to adorn themselves. So this isn't only a Pauline type of instruction. True beauty is inward, it's not outward. But that inner beauty of godliness expresses itself in outward displays of good, godly, and righteous works and behavior. Amen? That was the first question. Now let's get on to the second question. And that's in verses 11 and 12. And that question is, how should godly women be discipled in the church? How should godly women be discipled in the church? Verses 11 and 12. Now, in verse 11, coming off the heels of 9 and 10, Paul changes the subject from dress to a Christian woman's discipleship in the gathering of the church when we come together. And it's mainly in the areas of learning, teaching, and authority. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are aware this section, especially 11 and 12, 13, 14, 15, uh, has come under much discussion and heated debate. And I would say, unfortunately, unfortunately, because this is instruction, this is encouragement, this is Paul teaching the church how they ought to conduct themselves. And to be honest, while yes, some of the language is somewhat challenging to interpret, I have to be honest, I, I think it's fairly straightforward. Um, in what Paul is saying here, uh, when you approach it unbiasedly and with a consistent interpretive method, a consistent hermeneutic, and understand once again why Paul is writing this, chapter 3, verse 15, instructions for how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church. But what makes it perplexing to some is when people superimpose upon this passage a cultural worldview that is alien to the Bible. And thus they interpret this passage in line with perhaps the world's philosophy or en vogue culture or maybe their own personal biases or preferences. But what Paul says here, yeah, it's candid, but it's not unreasonable. And it's not arbitrary. In fact, Nothing here, he says, really is a surprise and nothing is in contradiction to the rest of Scripture. What he does say, though, is very pastoral and very encouraging 
as he teaches Timothy how Timothy should shepherd the flock of God in Ephesus. Ephesus. Now, women in that culture, again, thinking historically about this, were not as educated like the men were. There definitely were educated women, but far and wide, most women were not as educated as the men were. Uh, Oftentimes, women education was prohibited, especially in the wider Jewish and Roman world at that time. In Jewish synagogues, women could be present, but they were not encouraged to learn. So Paul reminds Timothy, and and listen to this, this is where this is encouraging. He reminds Timothy that the women are to actually learn and be discipled when assembled with the church. This is a huge blessing. I mean, this might, yeah, it might seem inconceivable for us today, um, where in our culture women alike receive education in institutions and in the church just as men can. But in fact, the, the word here in verse um, uh, 11, when he says they must receive instruction or they must learn, is actually a command. It's a command. Paul says women must re- receive instruction. They must be disciple. They must be edified and they must learn. And why is this? Because women in Christ, are just as much disciples and saints saved by grace alone and Christ alone as the men are. I mean, this was actually, we have to kind of get out of our uh, 21st century time zone and go back 2,000 years, and this was actually revolutionary, an uplifting aspect of Paul's instruction to the church. Again, we cannot forget that time in which they lived, Uh, Women back then were very much considered second-rate citizens and relegated to inferior societal positions in both the Roman and Jewish world, and they were forbidden from learning with men. It really was, back then, a man's world. Uh, The Babylonian Jewish Talmud says, quote, the men came to learn, the women came to hear. They had a separate section for the women, Uh, Jewish men prayed daily and thanked God that they weren't Gentiles, slaves, or women. And so Christianity and the word of God as a whole places women on an elevated level. On an elevated level. And and welcomed them to learn and grow in Christ. So I want to make sure that we all understand that this passage should not be approached as if it's a negative injunction or an attack against women like so many sadly haven't interpreted it. No, it's just the opposite. Paul, the apostle, is enriching women just as Jesus did by teaching women, allowing them to follow him, serve him, something we see all throughout the New Testament. And even we see in the Old Testament, for example, in Nehemiah chapter 8, when, when Ezra and Nehemiah brought all the Israelites together to learn the law, it wasn't just the men who were learn, learning, but together were the men and the women. In the New Testament, we see servants like Phoebe in Romans 6, we see Priscilla, who was a major asset to the Apostle Paul in his ministry as she faithfully served the church and even privately with her husband, not publicly, but privately instructed the great preacher Apollos 
because he needed some correction in relation to the gospel. We see other prominent women such as Mary, Martha, Lydia, Mary Magdalene, and the list goes on, all who played important roles in serving the Lord and others in the church with the gifts that the Lord has given them. So women were far from being oppressed or marginalized in the church. They were mightily used by God, served faithfully, exercised their gifts, and were key figures in the beginning stages and ongoing work of Christ's church. And many of these women were beloved and appreciated co-workers of Paul, such as you go to Philippians 4. You don't have to go there now, but Philippians 4 too. Euodia and Syntyche were beloved co-workers with Paul who served the Lord. Now, All that to say, Paul does clarify, however, something here by providing two ways, two ways women should learn when the church does assemble. And while Paul is addressing women here, like I said at the intro, men, we also must learn from this. For we as men also, sometimes this can be even harder for men, we also have to be humble and submissive and receive the word of God as it is preached to us. To remind ourselves of that, 1 Peter 5, 5, 1 Peter 5, 5, it says, uh, Peter said, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So let's all pay attention here, and let's see some more instructions that Paul has through the Holy Spirit to women. Number one is that women are to learn quietly, quietly. Now Paul have to stay, say right out the bat, Paul is not ordering women to be absolutely silent in the church. He's not telling women to put duct tape over their mouth and to shut up. That is not at all what Paul is indicating here. In fact, we know from 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5 that women prayed and that they had some form of a prophetic role in the church, but quietly implies a couple things here. Number one is that quietly implies that women are not to um, usurp the God-intended leadership and authority of male leaders in the church, especially and primarily in the area of congregational leading and teaching, governing, um, which is primarily um, um, delegated to men who are to be elders and pastors, 1 Timothy 3. That will be coming up soon. But number two, quietly also implies that women are to learn with a peaceful and humble attitude, welcoming the teaching of God with gratitude and without disruption and unruliness. I mean, that is, in a nutshell, the idea of quietly here. And while it's plausible that some women back then in the Ephesus church were disrupting worship services by perhaps um, trying to overrun male leadership, Again, this is a universal, transcultural principle that extends to all churches at all times and to all Christian women. But also, secondly, not only are they to learn quietly, but secondly, what does Paul say at the end of verse 11? 
end of verse 11. While they were allowed to be instructed and to learn, they are to do so with, as Paul says, entire submissiveness, entire submissiveness. Now, this is where some might get a little bit uncomfortable. Um, Some might tune out, but I encourage you not to. Um, Again, this is the word of God. What does this mean? What does submission, what does Paul mean, entire submissiveness? Now, submission as a word in our culture, especially in America, can be a dirty word. Um, Especially in our highly independent, uh, individualistic, kind of don't tell me what to do kind of culture. Um, and especially some, some people might see that word and think, well, that's a patriarchal, kind of male-dominating type of idea. But submission, again, this is what's important, when understood biblically, is actually a very wonderful and necessary reality we all are commanded to do in various realms of life, all of us. Uh, submission simply means to come under to come under someone who is an authoritative position that God has ordained. Let me repeat that. Submission simply means to come under someone who is an authoritative position in an authoritative position that God has ordained. We all, in some way or another, come under authority, do we not? I mean, can anyone genuinely say, Um, that they are entirely autonomous Um, and that we I don't have to obey or submit to any authority I mean think about the wild out-of-control anarchy there would be if there was no submission to authority I mean we kind of are seeing it in many regards in the world in which we live these days but in fact it is ingrained in our sinful nature of, of all men to rebel against authority, especially God. This is what happened in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. God's authority, or should I listen to Satan? But God's word says that children are to submit to their parents, wives to husbands, a society to submit to government, students to teachers, employees to employers, Christians to their Lord and to the word of God, and Christians to church leaders. Now, we don't submit just for submission's sake as a form of blind allegiance to just anyone. Nor do we submit or obey when an authority demands us to do anything against God's word or that coerces us to sin. No, we we, we submit first and foremost because this is how God, this is how God designed families, the world, societies, and the church in order to function and flourish. So when we submit, we do so as an act of worship, love, and obedience to God. And in case anyone, and we all can be prone to this, including me, in case anyone is against the idea of submission, let's not forget our Lord Jesus Christ. In his incarnation, he submitted fully to his heavenly Father. In fact, it's built in, if you will, to the makeup of the Trinity. Three persons, one God, all equally God, yet all have different roles and functions together. So Paul's instruction here on submission 
is pastoral. He wants Timothy to provide women the opportunity to learn the fullest so that they can be equipped for ministry and become more and more like their Lord Jesus Christ. And the godliest and most biblical way they can do that is quietly and submissively, allowing the male leaders to teach and lead in the church gathering, not to do so disruptively or in an argumentative way or differing, contradicting, grumbling, griping, and complaining. And women, you're not the only ones who can do that. Men can do that just as much. Amen? I can do that at times just as much too. This is for all of us as well. Does Paul mean total, uh, no questions asked submission to all men so men can run roughshod over women? Not at all. Not at all. Some people want you to think that's what this passage is teaching, but that's not what it means. Paul is indicating that there needs to be order and functionality based on, as 13 and 14 will teach, based on the mandate of God's created, divinely ordained purposes. This is how God has created it since the beginning. This is not Paul inventing it. This is how God has designed the church and elsewhere to function. Paul wanted to also clarify different roles that men and women have in the church. Um, when it comes to roles and how men and women are to function in society, marriage, family, and the church, in our culture, again, here in America especially, since we're all familiar with it, this idea that men and women um, are created by God to have differing roles, both important, of course, but that complement each other, to many, this is an abomination. Um, and sadly, some people even in the church think this way, going the direction rather of the world than aligning with the word of God. But Paul's purpose, again, to repeat myself, is not to place women at all under the heavy boot of men in some kind of subservient, domineering way. No, 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 no. He once again shows, as all the Bible does, that men and women are created by God equally to have different roles, however, and functions in the church, marriage, and family. This is the beautiful mosaic of God's creative design. It's beautiful. It's, it's wonderful, and it's something we should celebrate and defend and not quibble over and disobey. And so as Christians, as Godly women, godly men, those who proclaim and profess godliness. We have to make sure that we are aligning our lives with these truths and instructions. Um, not paying attention to the ever-changing ways of the world, but focusing our attention on his word. So, just a little more time here. Um, what does this look like? in terms of application. What does this look like in application? And I forgot to mention this too, if I may. Um, we have to understand that what Paul is teaching here does not contradict the truth that men and women, again, are created by God. And as Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither male nor female. Paul is not talking there about roles and uh, gifts and and leadership in the church. He's talking about men and women both share in the grace of life that God grants to those who repent and believe in him. 
It's open to all, not just men, but men and women. And that's a beautiful thing. Look at verse 12, our final verse of this passage and sermon. What is Paul getting at here? What does this look like? He says, I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Let's explore that just a little more here before we conclude. Um, now, Paul does expect that a woman, and he is talking about women in general here. A lot of people think that Paul is talking about the marriage relationship, that woman could be translated as wife and man could be translated as husband. But Paul is ind indicating this is for all women in the church. That has been his focus this entire time in chapter 2. Um, Paul expects that because a woman is allowed to learn in the church, just like the men are, there might be some women um, who will take that opportunity to think that, well, if I can learn publicly, um, then I can teach publicly to both men and women and, and assume that authority that is really just meant, as Paul's, uh, God's word says, to men. And not only does Paul anticipate that possible scenario, again, he grounds his instruction in, in the creation order and design of God, verses 13 and 14, going all the way back to the beginning of time. Uh, this isn't Paul's opinion. Uh, this isn't based on the culture of his time. Um, he's not worried about, well, he could be worried about this, but he's not talking about that there were false women teachers in the church at the time or that women weren't educated enough. But again, Paul roots everything he says here, it goes back to God's creative design since the beginning. And Paul says, I do not permit, I do not allow a woman to teach. This word for permit or allow is in, it's a verb, and it's in the continual ongoing sense. It's not a one-time ordeal, but it's in an ongoing manner of um, obedience. Uh, Paul, again, he's not pulling this out of thin air. This is not a tactic to suppress women from truly serving in the church. I know, and I've been hearing that here at Grace Community Fellowship, there are women here, godly women, who are truly serving the Lord in this church with the gifts that the Lord has blessed them with. But what is Paul saying? This is the way the Lord has ordered things. As someone said, I think it was Eric earlier as we were talking about baptism, this is what God's word says and we should obey it. It's really that simple. And Paul is doing this so that in the church there is maximum teaching and servant leadership. As we know, this prohibi prohibition in verse 12 is not on women not teaching at all. Women can teach, amen? And there are some really gifted women who have that gift that God has given them, the ability to teach. But what Paul is saying here is not the fact that women can't teach at all, they can, but teaching rather where that teaching must take place. And in the sphere of the public gathering of the church, when we all come together, both men and women, uh, women are um, exempt from teaching in that sphere or that realm, but they can most certainly teach. By God's design, it is the men, godly men, and not all men, but those who are qualified as elders and pastors, um, who are to lead in the church and teach in the church. Titus 1 
1 Timothy 3. I don't know who's going to teach 1 Timothy 3, but that's going to outline the qualifications of those men who are called and desire to be elders, pastors, overseers. But women can most certainly teach. Titus 2. Titus 2 says that women should teach other women and children. Women are to teach, if you're married, young wives how to love their husbands. We see in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, we see Timothy's mom and grandma teaching Timothy in the doctrine and truth of the faith. And look at Timothy's life. He was a man of God. And thus women should teach, and they must teach, if you have that gift, and lead other women, children, their own children. But again, the parameters of that teaching and governance and leading are set here in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 3. And just one final note here with that word authority, another word that might poke some people, authority, <laughs> right? It can be a nasty word sometimes today in our society. It might make some people shudder. But again, authority, exercising authority is a good thing. It's a biblical thing. As long as that authority is derived from God, and is loving and humble and committed to Christ and that person in authority loves Christ and obeys Christ and looks for the best interest of those who are under his authority. Uh, authority must never ever be practiced in a domineering, dictatorial, tyrannical manner by men or women. By men or women. And so leadership in the church by God's design is to be occupied by qualified, godly men who love Christ and his people. And as Jesus said, they are never to lord it over others just like the Gentiles do. Mm -mm. A leader, one in authority, is under Christ. Christ is the head of the church. And they are to serve others with love and truth and humility, humbleness, and looking out, as Timothy did, Philippians 2, for the best interest of others. And so, as we, and as we have answered these questions, how should a godly woman dress in church, and how should a godly woman be discipled in the church, it's incumbent upon all of us believers, all of us, to be students, Bereans of the word of God, making sure not that we are only studying it, dissecting it, understanding it up here, but are we applying it from the heart in a worshipful manner so that God can be glorified in regards to the way he has designed the church and men and women to function. We always have to remember as we look at which, which might be challenging for some of us, a passage like this, we must remember whose church this is. It's Christ's. Did I shed my blood for the church? No, Christ did. And Christ, right when you got saved, he baptized you into his body, the church. And now that you are members of his church, it is incumbent upon us believers to listen and obey his word, both men and women, and how we are to conduct ourselves as those who profess godliness. Let's forsake the things of this world and rather embrace the truth that God has for us because the truth that he has for us is not only for our good and for the good of the church, 
but it also glorifies God, the one who saved us and who is worthy of all worship, honor, and obedience as we depend on his spirit to guide us to obey these instructions. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your clear and instructive and powerful word. As always, I can never say this enough, we give you all the praise, glory, and thanksgiving that your son died for our sins and baptized us into his body, which is the church of the living God. And you have taught us, thankfully, you haven't left, of, left us as orphans, but you taught us how to, we are to live and, and function and serve in your church. And I pray for all of us here in this local assembly, continue to grant us a richer understanding of your word so that we may apply it in our lives individually and as the um, body of Christ by your spirit. We cannot do it alone. We need you. Father, may the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it was this morning in the baptisms, uh, continue to be proclaimed, and may more and more people be saved and believe on you, the only way to salvation, the only name under heaven by which man can be saved, Jesus Christ, so that they may know your abundant grace and your forgiveness of sins, which is found only in the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day of worship, fellowship, and learning from your word. Thank you for these three young women who are baptized today and courageously and boldly proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you now as we enjoy fellowship with one another and the food we're about to eat. Thank you for all the people who spent time making the food that we're all gonna enjoy. Bless them and uh, bless our time together now as we converse with one another. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.